Uh, Father, as we step into a new year and a new season and a new series, we just pray that you would be over this time. Uh, We know you are sovereign, but as we are going to look at today, we want to know you as more than just uh, over all things. We want to see you as over our lives and guiding us and leading us um, and helping us to understand reality properly. This world is telling us so many things that are not true and so many things that will lead to these false salvations um, that really achieve nothing. Um, And Father, it's not just um, frustrating or worthy of being angry at. It is tragic. Um, You have designed us for so many greater purposes and realizations than this world can offer. And the greatest of all of those things is your glory. So Father, just let us see your glory. Let us see how your word is more than enough for us because it reveals you and it reveals that you are close to us even when you feel far away um, and that you are there to help us and that's why um, we want you to teach us um, not me um, not anyone's opinions but you we want you to teach us um, what prayer is about and why it's important and we trust that you can do that and so we thank you and we're excited to see what you have in store for us and we pray these things in your name amen so as you guys can probably tell by the prompt, we're going to be starting a new six-week series today, um, and it's going to lead us all the way up until we leave for the CBC Church-wide retreat in February. Um, and the new series we're going to be covering is prayer. And the reason that I had you start by writing down um, some thoughts on prayer is because I think you guys know a lot about prayer, uh, and that's good. Um, and some of you might not know a lot about prayer And that's okay, too, because all of us are here to learn. But part of the reason I want you to write things down is because uh, myself and Josh, who's going to be teaching, and Evan, who's going to be teaching, uh, we really don't want to do a six-week series with you on prayer so that you have information about praying. Uh, We want to do a six-week series with you on prayer because we want you to pray. And it's not because we think it's um, personally edifying. At least that's not the the main reason. Uh, It's not because we think it's kind of the spiritual key to everything. Um, Those things might be true. But the reason is because God wants you to pray. Um, It's not only a command, um, but it's an imperative that believers want to do. And so the more that we talk about this subject, we really want to get at the heart of this subject so that you guys would leave every Friday And because the Bible is explaining to you how prayer fits in with reality as God has created it, the first thing you'd want to do is pray. And while you're listening to this series that you'd want to pray, and as you're talking to your friends, and as you have time alone, wherever it is that you would actually want to pray, because God wants you to pray. It is meaningful, it is important, it is relevant, and that is why uh, we're going through it. And I think if you guys have either grown up in the church or you know anything about Christianity, you probably already know that prayer is important and it's relevant. And nonetheless, we're doing a series on prayer. And that's not an accident. It's not just a random basic thing we have to cover, though we want to cover it and we are covering it. But it's because prayer is not only important and relevant, it's also one of the things that believers struggle with most. Um, As I've been reading on this subject, um, people will admit prayer is hard work. Um, Prayer is something that can feel difficult. Prayer is something that can feel hard to have uh, time to give to. And one of the biggest reasons that that happens, it's not just because we're busy, but a biggest reason that that actually happens is because we are very prone to forget what prayer is about. We're very prone to forget 
uh, why prayer is so important, why it is so relevant. And we kind of just default prayer as just another command. And the Bible has a lot more about that to say. Now, if we're going to talk about the subject at all, though, we kind of need to wind up and we need to get to this idea of what prayer actually is. And fortunately for me, that's actually kind of simple because the, the core idea that defines prayer is actually something most of you probably wrote down. If I ask you what prayer is, I bet many of you wrote down talking to God or communicating with God. And that's not wrong. That is a huge thing of what prayer is about. It is communicating or talking with God. Many of us usually think that uh, that talking is usually asking for things. So maybe you wrote down uh, prayer is asking God for things that we need or things that we want. And again, that's not wrong. That is a huge part of what prayer is. But sometimes we kind of forget why that is. And so prayer can sometimes just be this one other thing that Christians are supposed to do. It's part of a routine. Maybe you even think that that is the fundamental way that God blesses you. You know, if I pray in the morning and then I pray in the evening and maybe randomly in the day I pray another time, um, this is how I know that I'm a Christian. I don't know why I'm doing it. I just know I'm supposed to do it. And that's just part of being a Christian. Maybe some of you, when you think of prayer, you think of questions resulting prayer. Prayer is one of the Christian topics that seems to bring out some of the deepest questions that people have. For example, if prayer is talking to God, why doesn't God talk back? That's a huge question I had when I was a teenager. Maybe it's questions like, how can I know that my prayers are going to be answered? Again, it's a good question. Or maybe this, does prayer even work? Or maybe you might phrase it differently. If God is sovereign, why should I pray? Or maybe you phrase it this way. If I pray, can I change God's mind? And listen, if we're going to be able to answer any of those questions, which are good questions, we need to actually start at a different place. And me immediately just jumping into answering those questions would skip a lot of things that are the foundation of prayer. And that actually help us define why a prayer study is so important. And so before we do any of that, we first need to get to the heart of prayer. And that can be kind of difficult to do because there's not necessarily a verse or a paragraph in the Bible that just defines prayer. It's not like an encyclopedia or a dictionary where you can just go in the back and look at the index, find prayer, and go to a verse, and it just explains this is what prayer is. Sometimes there can be places that say what you should pray or this is a reason why you should pray, which we'll be covering, but it doesn't necessarily say this is what prayer is. However, if you read a lot of the Bible, there are definitely some things about prayer you are going to discover pretty quickly, and even more so as you read more and more of the Bible. One of those things is that prayer is clearly important and relevant because it's everywhere. Prayer is everywhere in the Bible. Prayer is like the fabric of the Christian faith. It is impossible to understand anything about the Christian life if you exclude prayer. And part of the reason you see that is because it's just everywhere, both Old and New Testament. If you go to the Old Testament, uh, prayer is so important that it's actually woven into the fabric of Israel's society. Israel organized their day. God's people, they organized their day around prayer. And it was something that God talked to Israel about often in some of their most important rituals and then some of the most mundane things that they got to do. 
And that doesn't change when you get to the New Testament and you start talking about the church. Because not only does it say that the church was constantly praying, and not only did Paul and the apostles pray and tell the church to pray, but you also see that a prayer is somewhere where people gathered. People are constantly talking about meeting at the house of prayer in order to pray. So this is very, very important and relevant. But one other thing that you'll definitely notice about prayer, the more you read the Bible, is that prayer is something that believers want to do. Prayer is not something that people feel forced to do. Now, don't get me wrong, there are definitely commandments about prayer in the Bible, but those commandments are reminders to believers of something they already want to do. And one of the ways you can notice that is that the godliest people in the Bible are the people who pray most. The people who understand the most about God, the people who love and cherish a relationship with God, those are the people who pray the most. In the Old Testament, you can see examples like David and Daniel, people who prayed a lot and people who have their prayers recorded for us to be a pattern for prayer. And when you get to the New Testament, it doesn't change. When you see people like Paul and the apostles, people are constantly praying. And of course, the best example of any of that is Jesus himself. Jesus was constantly praying. Jesus lost rest in order to pray. Jesus removed himself from discipleship opportunities to pray. Prayer is clearly important. And it's clearly something that believers want to do. And so again, we have to go back to the question, if it's so important, and if godly people do it, and if I want to be a godly person, how do I start understanding prayer rightly? Where do I begin? And that's where we want to begin today. And I want to start with a very simple answer to that question. One way you can start thinking about prayer rightly is this. Prayer is what happens when believers want to live life with God. Prayer is what happens when believers want to live life with God. If you want to live life with God, you will pray. Many people are going to say that they know and that they love God, but that doesn't mean that they're living life with God. People can do a lot of tell and no show. Prayer is showing that people want to live life with God. And that's because prayer is about communicating with God and to God that we love him and that we know him. Prayer is about living life in an active relationship with God, not a passive relationship with God where I know a lot about him, but I spend no time with him. One pastor explained it this way. Prayer is a simple expression of true desire. It is a simple expression of of true desire. And that's just a fancy way of saying when you honestly desire to live all of life with God, then you will want to communicate to God about your life. And that concept is so important and so foundational that that is where we want to spend our time today. And I want to show you an illustration of what that looks like in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 23. Go over to Psalm 23. It'll be somewhere smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And I want you to have it in front of you So that you know that this isn't just a random opinion or a random strategy. This is what God wants us to understand about what a life with him looks like. So I want you to have that Bible open with you this entire time, okay? And some of you might even feel like you don't need it. Because when you go to Psalm 23, you might remember that this is one of the most famous psalms in the whole Bible. The title of the psalm is, The Lord is my shepherd. 
And some of you probably have light bulbs turning on that you know this one. Some of you who grew up going to VBSs or grew up in the church, or maybe some of you have done Awana, you probably even memorized these verses. And nonetheless, these verses are so incredibly helpful to understand something serious about prayer. So let's read these six verses together, starting in verse one. This psalm, it says, is a psalm of David. And David says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word to God's people. What David wants to show you fundamentally is that prayer begins with an attitude before it becomes an activity. Did you get that? Prayer starts as an attitude before it becomes an activity. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, what I mean is this. Biblically thinking about prayer starts when you think about life in a certain way. If you think about life a certain way, you will be able to pray. If you think about life wrongly, then you won't be able to pray. And when you think about life in this way David is helping us see, then it draws you towards God. And what David is telling us in Psalm 23 is that you recognize not only that God is over all of life generally, but is over your life personally. That's the key, that God is over your life personally then you will want to live life with God. And that means communicating with him and being close to him throughout your life. And David is going to show us what he means by that because there's one phrase that sums up him thinking about his life with God personally involved. And that is the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Now we understand that illustration a little bit. A shepherd is someone who protects and leads and takes care of sheep. But that was a huge illustration full of all sorts of things to people in the ancient Near Eastern context when this was written during the Old Testament times. But before David explains to us in the next verses what he means by describing God as shepherd, he's saying something very important about himself that can be easy to miss. If David is calling God his shepherd, then he's describing himself as a sheep. That's going to be essential. Now, he doesn't mean he's fluffy even though I'm assuming he probably had a big old beard. That's the way I imagine him. And he's not calling himself an animal. He's not making fun of himself. What he's saying is the chief characteristic of a sheep is that they're needy. They're dependent. They're weak. They don't do well living by themselves. And David thinks of himself that way. Survival is difficult for a flock without a shepherd. And he does not think his life is going to go very well if he is removed from God. 
because God is his shepherd. And that idea launches him to start thinking about how God is personally involved in his life. And he starts right away in verse one by saying, I shall not want. What David is saying is that God is providing what David needs. What he's saying is I won't lack anything essential to me. I'm always going to have what I need. That idea of not wanting isn't desiring the way we use it. It's saying anything I need, I'm always going to have because God is going to give it to me. Now, that's a big thing to say. That might be generic, something that we think we hear in the church a lot. But go back and try and think like David, okay? David is a king, right? We know in the Old Testament that David became a king. A king is the last person who would be dependent on anybody. He has lots of people taking care of him. He has lots of servants who are ready to give him anything he needs and even anything he wants. And yet his attitude is that every breath, every meal, every rest, all of it only comes from God. And he only has it because God is giving it to him. That is the way he thinks about his life. All security, comfort, and sustenance is all just because of God. And he doesn't stop there. He continues by saying God not only provides, but God guides him. What he's explaining is that sheep aren't really good for their sense of direction. They don't have internal compasses. They don't know how to get the things they want. Even basic needs are sometimes difficult for sheep to get. If they need water, they might try to drink from a dangerous river with a current which they could fall in and get washed away. And yet he is led to still waters to drink the water he needs only because God led him there. And it goes the same for rest. Sheep are not really good at finding places to rest easily because they could get picked off by wolves or they could be in a climate that doesn't have the right shelter. But again, he can find the place that he needs rest and where he can graze. He can get more of what he needs because God led him there. God is providing for him and guiding him to where he needs, which is saying two things about God. Firstly, it's saying God is sovereign. It's saying, even though I am making decisions to get what I need and to provide for my needs, ultimately, God is the one doing all that. So God is sovereign, which means he's in control of everything. I'm not a puppet. I'm making decisions. But ultimately, God is ordaining all of those things to come to pass. But it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's that God is also compassionate to David. The reason he's getting what he needs and the reason God is ordering his life in such a way that he gets what he needs is because God loves him. It's not an accident. God's sovereignty is towards David in such a way to demonstrate his compassion. Romans 8, 28. All things work towards good for who? For those who love him. And all those who love God are those who have first been loved by God. And that's how David thinks of his life. And it's so deep that what he says in describing God further in verse 3 is he says this, God restores my soul. Previously, he's been talking about the ways God provides for him physically outside of himself. But now he's talking about the way God is fixing him inside himself. He's saying, I'm a person who goes all the wrong places, not just physically, but spiritually. 
That's what sheep do. That's how Isaiah 53 verse 6 describes people being like sheep spiritually. In Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Which means outside of God, I wander towards what is not spiritually good for me. All the time. I chase feelings. I chase desires. And without God, none of them are working out for me. Spiritually speaking. So God is not only turning him around, which is what the word restore means. But he's turning him towards all good, which by definition is God. He's helping him see life in a certain way, spiritually turning him in the right direction. And therefore, he is getting more of God. And as he continues verse 3, he basically sums up that idea by saying this. If I'm being sustained by God, my life has to be about God. If all of my life is a result of the sovereign compassion of God, my life has to be about God. And he sums that up in verse three by saying, God leads me in paths of righteousness, which is the right paths, for his name's sake. Which is constantly a phrase used in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. And it's just a way of saying, for God's glory. God isn't just leading him to things that he needs. He's leading him to himself. He is demonstrating in his sovereign compassion over David's life that he loves him by seeing God's character. When he sees how his life is being led by God as a shepherd, he is seeing more of God and that glorifies God. When our lives are a result of what God is doing For our good, it glorifies him and should turn us to look at our lives having one ultimate purpose, which is I must glorify God. I want to glorify God. There is no greater and no more lovely purpose than that. And there's a reason he thinks that way. And it's not because God is a shepherd, it's not even that God is the shepherd. It's because he says in verse one, God is my shepherd, mine personally. Not that I own God, but I have a relationship with God. Ask yourself this question. Is God your shepherd? Ask yourself this question. Why is God your shepherd? How can you be confident that the whole king of the universe has a personal relationship with you? Because lots of people in this world will answer that question with radically different answers. And they will answer that question with answers that are different from the Bible. One of the huge ways that you can meet lots of people who don't go to church and don't care really about any kind of moral purpose or godly purpose over their lives. Many of them will say that they do have a relationship with God. And the reason that they will say that is because they will say, look at my life. It is hashtag blessed. Lots of people say that. And lots of people say, I can equate God's love for me based on the material blessings he is providing. I have gotten this far because of God. God loves me. That's why I have these awards. That's why I have this acclaim. That's why I have these things that I want. God answers my prayers. God is my shepherd. Listen, that is not the way David thinks about his life. If you read only verses one to three, you might think that. 
Because it sounds like David is saying, I've got a pretty comfortable life for a sheep. But if you read verse 4, that all breaks down. Because verse 4, he says that even though God is sovereign and compassionate, he will be led through the valley of the shadow of death. That's not a one-time circumstance. That is a situation that is going to come up over and over again. And what David is saying poetically is that God will sometimes allow my life to be difficult and even painful. And that is part of his sovereign purpose. And that that doesn't mess David up, at least not normally. All of us go through seasons where that is a struggle because we don't like pain and we do like comfortability. But David's default is not to question that. It is not to question God's sovereignty and his compassion just because life gets very difficult. And there's a reason for that. It's because David understands that God's sovereignty doesn't always lead to comfortability because difficulty is necessary. Difficulty is necessary. Sometimes we are led through difficult paths. Shepherds had to leave their sheep through difficult paths. Sometimes they had to go through wolf-infested territory or go through climates that weren't very great where there was lots of rain or lots of snow because there was a valley on the other side they needed to get to. And David understood his life in a very similar fashion. Just because he was king, just because he was God's king, and just because he was God's man doesn't mean life was easy. He had children who died. He had children who betrayed him. He suffered the consequences of his own sin. He was constantly at war. David did not have a cushy, fluffy life. And he understood that God designed it that way. This is something that James talks about in James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, where James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds sounds like the most ridiculous thing you could ever say. And it's not wrong to get that gut reaction. Why on earth would I find it joyful to go through something difficult? And James explains, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James and David agree about something which is that difficulty is necessary to completing you, to letting you be able to continue. God as shepherd includes his love and his compassion over my life, even when things go wrong. As one pastor said, the presence of trials is not an indication of the absence of God. God is still there and still working, even when things don't seem to be working out. Now, here's kind of the question behind all of this, because we're just talking about life. We're talking about how God is working personally in the life of a believer specifically. And the question is, this is a series on prayer. So what on earth does all this have to do about prayer? That's a good question. We have to answer that question. This is how this connects to prayer. The reality is that you have to think about life this way if you're ever going to pray. Because when David thinks about his life this way, that in the good and the bad, God is my shepherd, you know what it makes him do? It makes him pray. When he thinks about God's sovereign compassion over him, it leads him to pray. And you can see that in verse 4 because he says this, you are with me. 
Life gets bad, but I will not be scared because you are with me. Did you notice something? David wants you to notice something. Now, there's something you might not notice because most of us don't know Hebrew grammar. But if you did, you'd know that that for you are with me is the grammatical center of this whole song. There's roughly 26 words before and 26 words after. And in Hebrew, the main point was always in the middle. So this is the main point according to the Hebrew. This is the point that you want to notice. All of the psalm is about that phrase, you are with me. But the thing you may have noticed is that if we were going to talk nerd grammatical language, we would say we switched from the third person to the second person. And if you don't understand what I mean, what I'm saying is first he was talking about God and now he's talking to God. He was describing God and now he's saying, it's not that God is with me. You are with me, God. I'm talking to you. That's prayer. David thought about his life and how God is working in it and started praying. Because ultimately his comfort is not that God is doing something far away but that God is doing something so close and intimate to him that he can talk to him and God will hear him. This is the attitude of someone who understands what life as a Christian is about. It's not knowing things about God, it's speaking with him because you you know how close he is in your life. David prayed because he knew life was about living with God not just living for God. And that's the attitude of anyone who understands the Christian life, which leads us to the ultimate question of this first sermon, which is this. Do you want to live life close to God? Do you want to live life close to God? Because maybe the reason you don't pray is because you don't think about life this way. In the middle of your homework, in the middle of an argument with your siblings, When you're at school or on your sports team or alone in your room, is your default thought, I want to be close to God. I want to feel that God is genuinely doing something in my life, which factually I'm supposed to know that he is, but experientially I don't feel like he is. That's where prayer comes in. I've been reading a small book called The Hidden Life of Prayer by a guy named David McIntyre. He died 100 years ago. And this is something he said about prayer. And I'm going to phrase this as a big boy quote, which means I'm going to say it and you might not get it. And that's okay. I'm going to rephrase it. But I think the way he said it, if you get it, is really impactful. This is what David McIntyre said about prayer. He said, we do not know the true potency of prayer until our hearts are so steadfastly inclined to God that our thoughts turn to him as by a divine instinct whenever they are set free from the consideration of earthly things. Now, that may be hard to understand, so let me simplify it a little bit. What he's saying is part of the reason we don't understand how powerful prayer is is because we don't naturally think that God is doing something in our life. And that's why we don't pray. And then even when we pray, we don't feel like it does anything because we actually think God is far away. And he's saying the chief reason that that happens is because the thing we care about most is things in this world. This world that is broken, full of sin, 
full of desires that will end when our life ends. And yet we think that is so good when God is offering us so much more. And that becomes so distracting that that is why we don't care about prayer. And that's why our default is not to pray because we don't think God is close. But our default is to live for ourselves and by ourselves. But ask yourself the question. If you believe and if you could know with surety that the God of this universe could direct all of your life towards his glory and our ultimate good, would you want to be close to him? I heard a really good illustration that was talking about prayer. Just thinking about uh, the sun. Imagine a very, very sunny day and uh, you had a mirror. And if you have a mirror and you know that the sun is beaming down on you, you can angle that mirror and you can send it anywhere you want. And if you're like me when I was a kid, you're a little psychopath, you would burn ants or burn things that would make noises and stuff because you're crazy. And that's cool. Um, the point he was trying to make about that in relationship to prayer is that we try to pray for very, very specific things instead of thinking of God doing things in our life and having a mirror and directing what at him? Anything from anywhere. That prayer should be like that mirror. That anything that God is putting in our life, that is worthy of prayer. Because if God is doing something in every single part of our lives, we should direct as much of our lives as possible to God. And listen, the thing that's so fascinating about David praying here is he doesn't pray the way we think. He's not just praying thankfulness. He's not just praying asking for things. He just prays life back to God. That's it. He, he thinks about life the way God wants him to, and he just says it to God. And he does that three times. You can see it when he starts right here in verse 4. He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod and the staff are the chief tools used to lead and protect sheep that the shepherd used. And God, as the shepherd of the whole universe, he doesn't just have two resources. He has infinite resources. And David knows his whole life is a result of God using all of his resources for David's good. And this is all he says. He says, God, I am comforted knowing you are leading me and protecting me with everything you have. And I just want you to know that I know that. That's it. Thing number two that he prays for. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, he kind of bails for a sec on the shepherd metaphor, but that's because he's thinking about God as compassionate, and he thinks of a better metaphor for how compassionate God is. In the same way he's thinking, a shepherd is concerned with his sheep, he thinks about a host being hospitable to someone, inviting someone over for dinner and having a meal for them. And in the Old Testament context, that wasn't just, hey, uh, come over, I heard you're super hungry, and so I made you some beef. That's not what he's talking about. He's not just saying, I'm going to provide for your needs. That was the best illustration of having fellowship with someone, being friends with someone, wanting to be close to someone. That's why way later in Revelation, the comfort of heaven is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Two of the most intimate illustrations you could possibly use is a marriage and a meal. A marriage and a meal. 
And a meal here is this idea of, I don't just want to rule over you. This is God speaking to David. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to hang out with you. I want you to know that I am here with you. And David gets that. And it's overwhelming to him. And it's so good that he doesn't think any distraction could get in the way of it. Because he says, this isn't just a private hangout. His enemies are close by in the presence of my enemies. But the point that he's making is not that the enemies are also invited for dinner. But it's the idea that no matter what distraction, even the worst of people that are against me, even if they're available, that will not be more distracting than the love of God being displayed to me. And so he says, God, even when life is hard, I know you're serving me and you are blessing me. And I want you to know that I know that. And finally, in verse five, he explains, God, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Anointing was a way of honoring someone. Priests and kings were consecrated for honorable service. They were shown as important and respected by being anointed. And you did the same thing with loved ones. That's why funerals, when they were being organized, the dead body of a person that was loved would be anointed with oil. It was a way of demonstrating love and respect. And that's how David feels when he knows God is personally involved in his life. And so he says, God, you honor my life by being with me. And it is way better than I deserve. Way better. The God of the universe wanting to hang out with a sinner like me. My cup is overflowing. That is more than I can imagine. And yet it's true. And so I want you to know that it's true. The idea that he's trying to bring home is this. Do you just think God is sovereign or do you think God is personally involved in your life? Ask yourself why your current prayer life is the way it is. Do you tell God, I know you're doing something in my life for your glory in both the good and the bad in both the boring and the exciting, I know you're doing something. Do you tell God, God, please show me that you are personally participating all over my life. That God is here and now wherever you are. Do you tell God that? And the greatest question of all this is, do you want him there? Think about the time you spend when all the lights go out. Think about the time you spend when six period is done and you've got no one to hang out with and it's just you and your phone. Do you want God there? Do you want God in charge of that moment? Because whatever he wants you to do with it is going to be better for you. And is going to lead to something much more intimate that you could find somewhere else. Do you want God to be personally participating in every part of your life? David does. And he knows that God will honor the promise that he is and will continue to be involved. That's why he ends the psalm in verse 6 by saying this. Surely, which means definitely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all all the days of my life. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David ends by praying a promise. He knows where his life is going, and he wouldn't tell God something that he wasn't sure God told him himself. Spurgeon, who I quote a lot, said something very similar when he said this, Praying without a promise is like going to war without a weapon. But going to him with one of his own promises is like going to a bank with a check. God must honor his promise. That's not a challenge to God. That's just agreeing with what God has said about himself. Do you want to pray God's promises to him? Do you think about your life as one that can be built solidly and enjoyed spiritually and understood sovereignly? It would have purposes greater than just your own life if God is your shepherd. Is that the way you think about your life? And listen, maybe it's not. Because God is not generically a shepherd to everyone. And God has made it clear throughout the Bible how it is that sinners can be personally involved in what God is doing in this world. And there is only one way. And you only need to look further in the New Testament to see who describes himself as a shepherd. Jesus in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep will hear my voice. That doesn't sound very exciting because what if I haven't heard his voice? Well, he says something else. In John 10, he explains that the father has given him authority over everything. And what has he done with that authority? He says, I've been sent to sheep who have not heard my voice yet. That's what he says. The chief shepherd Christ was sent so that anyone could feel and live with God as their shepherd. That is the promise of the Bible. That Jesus Christ wouldn't just save you because you cannot save yourself, but he would be intimately close with you throughout all of your life. And that's why prayer is so important and so relevant because it is the result of thinking about your life being lived as a sheep to God our shepherd. If you can think about your life that way or start thinking about your life that way, then you can pray like Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 calls us to pray. He says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. That anything we need, God would provide. And he would do it because he's sovereign and because he loves us. And because it's so essential to see how God is going to do this and answer some of our questions, next week we're going to pick up from the same topic, except we're going to see how Jesus helps us answer that question. Because no one is going to understand better than our chief shepherd what it looks like to pray as a result of thinking about our life being lived with that shepherd. So let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. And we don't ever want to say that without meaning it. You are not just ruling over your creation, but us whom you have created, you are also reconciling to yourself. Father, we have so many questions. Like when we pray, do you really hear us? When we pray, 
Can we know that you hear us? Can we feel anything? Can we see anything? Can we do anything to make this more real? And Father, we pray that you would purify our questions, that you hear us. You are not scared of what we might say to you. You are not nervous that we might blaspheme you so deeply somehow that you would turn away from us. You are Lord of all, and yet you are good to us. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you might bestow so much grace to us that we might not only live for you, but live with you. Father, we want to understand that better. So please help us understand prayer on a much deeper level than when we came in today, so that we would not only live for you, but we would live with you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.